Welcome to the Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hosted by John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 14 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, today we'll be interviewing Holly Black. She's the author of the best-selling children's book series, The Spiderwick Chronicles, which were adapted into a major motion picture. Uh, recently, she's been working on a graphic novel series called Good Neighbors, and her new novel, White Cat, is set in a contemporary world in which magic has been outlawed, so only outlaws have magic. So we'll be talking to her about all that, and also... Uh-oh. Uh, uh-oh, John. What? My, my precognitive abilities are starting to kick in. And I'm getting this weird premonition like I'm going to mysteriously disappear about 10 minutes into this interview. <laughs> well, I, I hope that doesn't happen, but, uh, I mean, you've never been wrong before. <laughs> no, well, I mean, if, that, if that happens, I'll, I'll just be prepared and I'll take over. All right, all right. It's... <laughs> no, I mean, I, I hate to shatter uh, the seamless illusion that we work so hard to create here at Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And this is actually a little bit embarrassing to admit, but we, we don't actually do this show in one take. Um, <laughs> So actually what we do is record the inter- interviews first and then record everything else later. So we actually recorded this interview a week or two ago on a day when the internet basically was a series of tubes. Uh, <laughs> or at least that's what you'd think from how slow it was. So I, I don't know what the problem was. Uh, it's never happened before. It's all very mysterious. Uh, and all we can really say for certain is that it was not in any way our fault at all. So don't blame us. You know, we did everything just like we always do. Usually it works. So I think really the only rational explanation is probably evil internet fairies. <laughs> uh, I think that they heard us talking about them and they couldn't curse our cows not to produce milk since, you know, we don't have any cows. So they cursed our internet connections instead. You know, the milk I had in the refrigerator uh, did go bad, though. So mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's another, that's another thing. We'll have to get those. We'll get, we'll get you fairies. But yeah, so anyway, so the internet was terrible, and I got kicked off completely, so I'm going to disappear about 10 minutes into this interview. And so John had to soldier on without me. He was heroic and, and managed to go on. I, I managed to even control my weeping you know, <laughs> that Dave was gone. But um, but even after I was gone, Holly's audio was sort of fading out in places. So I think more than one person must have been having internet issues. But fortunately, we still got plenty of great material to use. Um, and this interview has been edited a lot to make it flow as smoothly as possible. But there are definitely still a couple places where it's a little choppy. So, so that's why. And so we hope you enjoy the interview. And then stick around after the interview where John and I will be talking about action figures and evil fairies and stuff like that. All right, let's get our pre-recorded interview <laughs> with Holly Black on the phone. Hello. Hi, it's Dave and John from Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. It's Holly on the other end. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, okay, so, so first of all, uh, what books did you read when you were younger that made you want to be a writer yourself? And what sort of early writing did you do before breaking into print? I, uh, my favorite book when I was a kid was, I think, it's, I think his name was Paul, Paul Gallico, uh, Thomasina. And um, I, I love that book. That was my favorite book. Um, I remember reading a lot of Lloyd Alexander, Madeline Leangle, Tolkien, Michael Moorcock, Tanifley. Um, I think that those were probably really big influences. I always knew that I would be writing fantasy. It never occurred to me that I would be writing anything else because that's what I read from the time I was a kid. I did this Juvenalia panel recently, 
in New York with uh, Scott Westerfeld, Cassandra Clare, Elia Dawn Johnson, Justine Lambelestier, and David Levithan. And we all read from stuff we had written in high school. <laughs> and it was truly the greatest panel I have ever done. The audience was crying with laughter. <laughs> uh, my favorite one was uh, Scott's, which was a demon who solved crimes in space. <laughs> it was fantastic. And I really like I really wish that we did more of that because I think it's I think it's probably helpful to people to see uh how truly bad we were. <laughs> but I wrote I wrote a novel when I was in eighth grade. It was called Knights of the Silver Sun. It was terrible. And it was about a dragon, I think. And there was a, there were a bunch of adventures. Like it was like a mashup of every book that I liked at the time. So it was like a bunch of really angsty people who had weird names like death going to i believe fight dragons and liberate vampires okay so apparently uh your mom raised you to believe that supernatural creatures like fairies were real um uh uh, so what was that like growing up i was afraid all the time (laughs) um uh my my favorite story is uh that she she once told me not to astral project because if you astral project, you're leaving your body empty and something else can get into it. Mm-hmm. Something I had never really considered before. <laughs> and so I became, you know, I become terrified that I would astral project by accident. <laughs> I was pretty, pretty <laughs> direct uh, example of the kinds of things that I was really concerned about. I was worried trees would grab me. We had really big, creepy trees in this old house that, that we lived in, they would sort of scratch at the windows at night. I was scared of everything, and I think it, it, it is one of the reasons why I, I read so much folklore, because I thought, I need to learn how to protect myself. Do you remember if you had a moment of epiphany where you're like, wait a minute, trees aren't going to grab me? I have never had that moment <laughs> I mean, I feel like one of the things that you have as an adult is you have sort of how you were raised and this core set of no matter what you want to believe intellectually, you will always in the back of your mind have this set of beliefs of how the world works that you were raised on. And so it is very, very easy for me to default to that. Uh, so- when you were, when you were talking about astral projection, I was kind of thinking of like you know you know when people get older they like worry about like oh I hope I don't throw my back out and it's like oh god I hope I don't actually <laughs> astral project <laughs> like leave my body empty you know that would be awkward. yeah I was wondering if you went through like a an adolescent rebellion stage where you're like I'm gonna astrally project and you can't stop me <laughs> uh, no <laughs> <laughs> um, so apparently you were a big Dungeons and Dragons player. I think Dungeons and Dragons is, is, is great because, and especially was great for me because I, you know, I love telling stories and there's this period when it's no longer cool to play with dolls. Wait, what? You're, it's no longer, <laughs> right, right, exactly. But, um, and I was really, I was devastated. The idea that I no longer got to get together with my friends and, and, and play dolls which did not make me look like a... <laughs> it didn't let me make me look good. And Dungeons and & Dragons really fulfilled that desire for group storytelling in a way that was, at least at the time, considered cool enough to get by. So, uh, you know, I think it, it was, for me, the thing that, that let me kind of go on and, and keep telling stories. And also, it's how I met my husband, 
it's how I met Tony Dudalizzi, who I would wind up collaborating on Spiderwick with. And it's how I met my critique partner, Steve Berman. So I have a lot to thank D&D for. All right. So you mentioned that you met, uh, you know, your collaborator, uh, the artist, uh, Tony DiTerlizzi, uh, playing D&D. But uh, so once you guys got together working on, uh, you know, Spiderwick Chronicles, like what, what was the uh, collaborative process like? Well, we, we didn't actually meet in a campaign. I met because he was illustrating Dungeons and Dragons and I was uh. working for a tiny, tiny magazine about gaming and I came up to interview him. And we wound up just talking about all kinds of stuff. Both of us were raised on a lot of the same uh, art. Both of our moms were painters and crafters. And so we had a ton of stuff in common. And then we all started hanging out. Um, but the, the collaborative process with Tony was, I mean, it was great. It was really the first time I have ever done anything like that. It was, it really came out of our friendship and the fact that we love to talk about stories. And he had this field guide to fairies that he really wanted to do. And I really wanted him to do. I thought it was fantastic. It was beautiful. Uh, and I said, well, you know, I could write. I've been doing all this research for my, for, for, for my first book, Tithe. And I've been doing all this fairy research. I have all this stuff. I, you know, it's just a couple paragraphs. Let me do it for you. Hmm. And um, from there, it wound up becoming, you know, the five books of the Spider-Man Chronicles plus that field guide. But it all started with the field guide. And it all started because... You know, I so wanted him to do this project. Okay, so uh, your uh, series of children's books, The Spiderwick Chronicles, were adapted into a major motion picture. Uh, how did that come about, and what sort of uh, role did you play in that uh, production? Well, The Spiderwick Chronicles were optioned really early on, around the same time that they were um, acquired by Simon & Schuster. Uh, they, were, they were optioned by Paramount, and everyone told us, don't get excited. You know, it's just an option. Never get excited. Don't get excited until it's greenlit. <laughs> And um, Mark Waters, the director, signed on back way back then, and we had met with him, and he was great. And you know, we sat down and talked about you know stuff he was really interested in about about the books, and they weren't finished at that point. They were. It was only we were up to I think two or three of five. So uh, a bunch of different scripts were written by different writers, and we got to we got to see them. Uh, everyone was very generous about keeping us involved, and we got to give our thoughts, whether or not they uh, liked them, or whether or not <laughs> you know, you know. I mean, when you have your work option, you really are putting it in the hands of other people, and they have to take ownership of it. Once it finally did get greenlit, mm-hmm. it was so hard to believe that it was actually happening because over the years, at every single step of the way, at each script, everyone had told us, "Don't get excited; it doesn't mean anything," and so. <laughs> When it finally was greenlit, I really don't think that I actually thought that the movie was going to happen until I was walking around on the set. And I thought, this is all very expensive. I assume they will have to actually put out the movie now. (laughs) But um, it was great. I mean, it really was. I I think because everyone involved was so good about keeping us involved and also just was, were, you know, great people who really wanted to make a great movie. I was really, really happy. I, you know, I think the film was great. Um, I think they really captured the spirit of the kids and the fairy folklore, I think, felt organic and over the earth and strange and out of the corner of your eye. And those were the things I cared about most, that and the fact that, you know, if I was a, if I was a kid or the young me would have really enjoyed it. I would have been a little scared, but I would have really enjoyed it. Uh, so is there going to be anything uh, else further in the Spiderweb Chronicles? 
And we just finished the last of the Beyond the Spider Chronicles that came out in September. Um, it was The Worm King. And that's the last of the, that's the last Spider book, which is really strange for me because I've been working on them pretty much, you know, the entire time that I have been publishing. I have been working on Spider Rick when uh, Tithe came out, which was my first book in 2003. I was already writing the Spider Chronicles. So this is the first time. Literally, that I'm not writing a Spider-Week book in all the time I've been publishing. Right. Uh, so recently you've been uh, writing some graphic novels. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about those uh, projects you've been working on? I've been writing the Gnabor series, uh, which is illustrated by Ted Nafee, uh, who I was a fan of, and I'm very lucky, agreed to come on and, and, and do this with me. And they're older books. They're, t- uh, they're for teenagers. And they the inspiration for them is... There was a murder about 100 years ago. This uh, man by the name of Michael Cleary killed his wife, Bridget Cleary, because he thought she was a fairy changeling. Hmm. And it's this really, really weird story because 100 years ago isn't that long. My great-grandmother, who you know I knew when I was a kid, would have been alive then. It shocked the nation because they just couldn't believe this. This you know, In, mo- in modern times, hmm. uh, such a thing could occur. And... It's an interesting story both ways, and, and I think that this is the thing that I always love about fairy folklore. It's interesting if she was a changeling, and it's interesting if she wasn't, which sadly she clearly wasn't. But her family, some members of her family were there. Her father was there, and he believed that the next day uh, his daughter Bridget would come riding back on a white horse. And when she didn't, that's when the whole plot began to unravel. and people started decompensating and making it obvious that they had a hand in, in her disappearance. So I thought, okay, I will take the parts of this that I'm really interested in. I will put it in contemporary times. I will change the story so that I can be, you know, have my cake and eat it too. Hmm. And tell the story of a girl named Rue whose uh, mom goes missing. And uh, people start thinking maybe her dad, a professor named Thaddeus had something to do with it. Um, did you have any trouble adapting to that graphic novel format? Well, it was it's a challenge. I mean, it's it's it, one of the things that was fun about it was the challenge, but it was also a challenge. Um, you know, being really, I had to be really, really aware of whether or not I was on the left or the right hand page, hmm. so I could think about you know what's the last panel you see before you turn the page, you know. How much action is there? How much, you know, are they just standing around talking? Is there a way where I can break that up? I like writing short, so you know, that aspect. Um, when going into it, I thought, well, this will be great. But there's ways you can write too short. When you're writing a graphic novel, there are things that you really need to include. Uh, one, things that, one of the things that I learned was that really leaving the clues in the visuals <laughs> annoys people. You know, I, I learned to think more about the pages as spreads and think about what's happening in the last panel so that you'll turn the page, you know, keeping that tension high, making sure people are moving and the scenes are changing. Uh, one of the things that I was really excited about, though, that you can do in a graphic novel is you can do flashbacks. We're really in books. You shouldn't do too many flashbacks. But, you know, in a graphic novel, you really you get to do tons. So I was really excited about that. Most of your published work concerns fairies. Uh, do you think you might uh, publish something in a totally different vein someday, like maybe, say, a story about space marines or something? 
in my short I mean one of the things that, that I loved about doing short fiction is getting to play with stuff that um, that's different than I normally do and um, you know I've done stories about a competitive eating contest with the devil I've done stories about I, I recently did a story about uh, vampires how I've done uh, you know I've done a bunch of a bunch of things in, in that form and and that's been great but then um, my new series actually has nothing to do with fairies very it's been interesting to to start a totally different world i'm um working on a series of books the series is being called the curse workers and the first book is white cat and it's it's actually based on the i was thinking about magic and the way that we organize magic in books you know often we have schools of magic like harry potter and many many other things we have lone wizards like gandalf we have a sort of medieval master and apprentice system by which one teacher teaches a small number of people uh, magic. And I thought, well, what are other organizational systems? And I thought, organized crime. <laughs> so um, this is a world sort of coming, coming out of that idea where there's always been magic. There's seven types of curse magic. And um, in 1929 in the United States, it was made illegal in what they call the ban. And just like prohibition led to the rise of various crime families, you know, and, and them becoming more powerful, the ban led to the rise of curse magic crime families. And so it's the book is set in, the, in contemporary times. Uh, we must assume not only that there is no curse magic, but there is no RICO Act. <laughs> so uh, the, the mobsters have sort of continued unto the present day. There's a kid, he comes from a family of con men and curse workers, although he is not himself a curse worker. Uh, who are, and his, his family's sort of loosely affiliated with crime families. They've mostly been just grifting. His mom is in prison uh, for working somebody. She's an emotion worker. She tried to get some guy to give her all, her, all his money. And um, Castle's in private school kind of trying for the mostly, mostly straight and narrow when he wakes up on the roof of his dorm and he doesn't know how he got there and he has to investigate his past to figure out exactly what's happening to him and whether or not it has to do with a girl he killed three years ago, who was his best friend, uh, who he loved, and who, perhaps not coincidentally, was the daughter of a crime boss. Hmm. Sorry, Castle. So that's what I've been working on. Very different for me. I, um, I wanted to break a lot of my habits. I wrote it in first person, which is the first time I've ever done a novel in first person. I wrote it in present tense because there was a lot of looking back and I didn't want to write a ton of past perfect. So uh, it's coming out soon. I'm, uh, I'm excited, but nervous. It is <laughs> difficult to do. You know, it's, it's, it's nervous making to do something different. Uh, so, uh, so why is it called white cat? One of the things that he does remember is that he was having a dream of a white cat and um, a white cat figures prominently throughout the book. It is extremely loosely based off the fairy tale of the white cat. Mm. Uh, and so, um, in addition to the White Cat, you also have a, a recent book out called The Poison Eaters, which is a collection of your short fiction. Uh, yeah, it was it was published by Kelly and Gavin at uh, Big Mouth House, which is part of Small Beer Press. And it's a really fun project. It's the kind of project that I always thought about doing, where you are essentially working on the book almost entire, you know, entirely with people that you know. So, you know, with Kelly and Gavin publishing it, um, my husband did some did the illustrations. Um, I've been writing short stories for about 10 years. 
the short story form for me is both was really really fun because I got to do things that I don't normally do and it was really really hard for me I wrote my first novel before I ever finished a decent short story hmm. I did a modern fairy tale story called the land of heart's desire which sort of tells a little bit about what's happened after the end of the modern fairy tale series the title story, Poison Eaters, was a book I, it was a short story I did for the Restless Dead anthology. And it's um, about three girls who are undead, who have been eating some kind of poisonous matter that this gentleman who is pretending to be their father keeps feeding them. And he has some kind of complicated plan, which they are trying to unravel. The Night Market was a story I wrote set in the Philippines. My mother-in-law is filipino my husband's half filipino and it was it was it was really funny to get to really i you know i've been i've been over with them but it was great to get her to tell me all kinds of specific really great specifics but stuff that she couldn't understand why i wanted to know like well, what are the weeds called hmm. why would you ever need to know like even knowing i was writing a short story she was like, why do you need to know this stuff and i got to use some of the stories that she had told me like how how when she was a kid there was this woman who came to their village and uh she was possessed and she bit a coconut in half <laughs> yeah actually speaking of the philippines uh, one of our listeners uh charles tan uh, he lives in the philippines and uh, he was uh, he wanted us to ask you uh, do you have any other plans to write uh, other stories set in the philippines i would i would love to but i am so like it's something where i would really i really want to make sure i get it right mm-hmm it's just really i think whenever you're writing outside of your own direct experience it's really really important to get it right okay so um now you recently edited uh, two anthologies uh geektastic and zombies vs unicorns right um and uh, so what made you decide to get into editing anthologies well um Cecil Castellucci who i who I co-edited geektastic with and i were at comic-con and we were um, we were standing on a very long, like an endless burrito line, hmm. and we were talking about the things we had seen, and um, somehow we we got to the idea of, of what would happen if uh, Jedi and Klingon woke up after a night of, of heavy drinking, and they woke up together, and they were, were horrified. They had betrayed their people by <laughs> being together, like a modern-day Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> And immediately after sort of generating this, we both wanted to write this story. And so we decided we, you know, we decided, well, we can write it together. And then we re- realized that there was nowhere in the world we could publish this story. <laughs> it's about science fiction and fantasy, but it's not of it. And it is perhaps too much, too much of it for, for any mainstream place we could think of. And so we were like, all right. And, and we sort of tabled it, called her about maybe a couple weeks later and i said i know what we can do with that we can edit an entire anthology <laughs> okay and so uh you want to talk about a little bit about uh zombies versus unicorns how that came about zombies versus unicorns is uh an anthology that i am currently editing with justine larvalestier and it is so much it is very fun it is uh it started when justine was talking crap about unicorns <laughs> as she's to do and uh, saying just how great how great zombies are. Uh, she's just she hates unicorns. <laughs> Who hates unicorns? Um, e- evil people. <laughs> evil people. Exactly. 
And I admit, I do not like this. I don't like zombies. Who likes zombies? Well, I, I like zombies, but it's, it's okay. <laughs> That's true. They, they decompose. They shamble. What's to like? I don't know. I kind of like all that stuff. You like all of that stuff? Oh. Yeah. Yeah, I, I actually feel that I'm the, the unicorn side editor, mm-hmm. as, as you can probably tell. I I feel like my side may well be the, the mocked side, the, the side that, that maybe not everyone is behind. But I have been encouraged by polling people in small numbers. Um, there's some there's definitely some unicorn support out there more than you think. <laughs> Although, uh, in my experience, all spider kids vote for zombies. <laughs> so, so are there any actual stories where zombies do fight unicorns? There is a story with both a zombie and a unicorn. It is Darth Nix's story, mm-hmm. but but they do not fight. Ah, well now if so a zo- no. if a zombie and a unicorn did fight, who would win? I mean, I would think a unicorn would win because you know, like zombies aren't very hard to kill, and the unicorn have that big giant horn that they can use to like just gore the zombie. So I would also think that. Yeah, and not only that, but they. I mean, unicorns purify disease. <laughs> so I feel like ah no, no, I mean they they are a healing entity. You know, even pieces of unicorns were used folklorically to cure various different ailments. So I think the, the zombie has no chance. Yeah, maybe maybe they could actually cure the zombieism, and you know that that would be even better than fighting. That would be like unicorns are just so magical they uh, they don't even need to fight. Yeah, they can they can cure. They can if you have warts or or anything, they can cure you from across the room. <laughs> unicorns are awesome. Okay, and you, um, you're also uh, working on a on the New Borderlands anthology, right, with Terry yeah. Wendling? Um, yeah, with Ellen Kushner. Ellen oh, Ellen Kushner, 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 right. It, and Terry is, she is consulting and hand-holding and uh, telling, us, <laughs> telling us the answers to all the questions that we are baffled by. Oh, so you want to talk a little bit about the history of that series for people who don't know? Yeah, um, Border Town... Is a, it's a series of urban fantasy short stories that were edited by Terry Windling about this town that sat between the mortal world and uh, the realm, which was Elfland. And in it, you had this juxtaposition of the very urban with fantasy and specifically... Uh, elven fantasy and the the city itself is a very strange place uh not magic doesn't always work there technology doesn't always work there it's unclear exactly how you find it and it's unclear exactly where it is it's all cities and no cities and it is one of the fundamental pieces of of literature that created uh urban fantasy as we know it today it was very inspiring to me. It was inspiring to an entire generation of people who've gone on to write about fairies and and about urban fantasy generally. So Ellen and I really wanted to put this book together so that people who, you know, writers who have loved that series will have a chance to play in it now. And people who didn't know about it will have a chance to experience it. All the people who are writing for it, um, are people who love the original series. Cat um, Valente, Cory Doctorow. We have, you know, Will Shetterly's writing a story. Nell Hopkinson's writing a story. You know, we have a ton of stuff coming in, still coming in. And it's just so great 
to get to see that place again and also see different voices in it. Okay, so um, as as sort of an old school, you know, urban fantasy reader, um, I mean, what do you think of the the sort of contemporary urban fantasy scene, which doesn't really bear much resemblance to where urban fantasy came from? You know, where it's mostly like killing vampires and shagging werewolves and whatnot. Well, it's really weird because urban fantasy really seems to have two distinct meanings depending on who is saying it, and and I think that urban fantasy sort of grew up in the romance community in a different way. And so I think people coming out of romance think of urban fantasy as being about vampires largely, but also, yeah, vampires and werewolves primarily. And I think people who came out of science fiction and fantasy think of it as being about fairies primarily and about this idea of numinous magic. So it's very, I think it's really weird because these two definitions seem to exist side by side, confusing everyone. (laughs) And, um, I, you know, I, I think that paranormal seems to be a, 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 the, the get-around word. If you say paranormal, I think people think, okay, it's probably going to be more romantic. And then you have this sort of, I think, kind of coming up the middle of them, you have this very noir-inspired stuff, like the Dresden Files and, um, you know, and, and also part of the paranormal you know, series, you have, you know, the Anita Blake books, which have the, have, you know, a detective aspect to them. You have, um, you know, a bunch of these books having that as part of their structure. And uh, so I understand you're going to be teaching at the Alpha workshop this summer. Yeah. And uh, so so, uh, what made you decide to do that? And, uh, you know, have you done much teaching before? I've done a a bunch of teaching before, both for uh, teenagers, and then I have taught at Clarion uh, twice. So I've I've wanted to teach at Alpha, actually, for a long time. I asked them before, but they they didn't take me. (laughs) They didn't have room for me that year. So I'm really glad that they're letting me come now. Um, I love talking about writing, and uh, teaching writing gives me a chance to do that. It's something I think about a lot, and uh, so, you know, it's it's a place where everybody else is also thinking about it. And um, it's, it's really, I, I get very nervous actually speaking in public, but for whatever reason, I don't mind at all teaching. Yeah. So, I mean, how much, how much would you have loved that at, at uh, you know, when you were a teenager to have a, a workshop like alpha available to you? I would have really, lo- I mean, I went, I went to um, a program at Rutgers that was a summer arts Institute and it wasn't specifically for, for fantasy writing. It was just general writing and it, they had um they had an art department and a theater department and they did a bunch of stuff and uh i think it really had a significant impact on my life to realize that there were other people like me out there you know i i grew up hanging out with a lot of hoodlums <laughs> and uh going away for a summer and going away for any like going away for any stretch of time like that i think you get to see yourself the way people who haven't known you your whole life see you i think sometimes you can get stuck being seen a certain way and you can get stuck thinking of yourself a certain way and sometimes if you're a writer that way can be you know weird or um or or you know or you don't get to show this side of you and i think actually being in that kind of environment changes your whole sense of who who you can be uh and what you can do it definitely did for me i think it 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 kept me probably from getting in a lot of trouble Hmm. 
And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Holly Black for joining us on the show and for uh, being such a good sport about all our technical issues. So, you know, when Holly was talking about how, as a kid, she read all these books about fairy tales and folklore and stuff because she felt like she had to learn information that would protect her (laughs) from Mm -hmm. the real fairies that she was sure were were a threat to her. I was thinking about that, and it's kind of funny because I used to to read a lot of um, fairy tale and folklore and mythology and stuff for a kind of similar reason. But, you know, I used to play all these adventure games, and particularly in the King's Quest series. There were all these, you know, you would meet all these characters from fairy tales and folklore and mythology. And so a lot of the puzzles, you wouldn't know how to solve them unless you knew the story. You know, like like if there's a little gnome and he asks you to guess his name, it helps a lot to, to know <laughs> the story of Rumpelstiltskin. And so I would read just book after book after book of, uh, of fairy tales. You know, and I always thought, you know, when I was a kid that like the King's Quest series would go on for for generation after generation. And my kids would be playing, you know, King's Quest 30 and stuff. And so that I would you know, be able to use this great store of knowledge to just go adventure, you know, to just play these adventure games all through my, throughout my life. It was kind of disappointing that, uh, you know, that they don't make them anymore. And I just know all this, all these fairy tales. And, you know, fortunately, I'm, <laughs> I write fantasy, so I, I get to use a lot of the stuff. Did you ever do anything similar for, for a game or anything like that? Uh, the closest thing I can think of is um, when I played Where in the World is Carmen San Diego, you know, I... I sat there with a atlas or a almanac because there were, there was always all these uh, clues about like what flag you know was waving, so you would have to know what the flags were in order to find out what country that Carmen was going to and all that. I, I was thinking though, actually, you know, given how much uh, we've talked about King's Quest on this show, we, you know, we could have like a subtitle like you know King's Quest Love Fest. <laughs> yeah, I also have something I wanted to mention about Robert Aspirin's myth series. <laughs> That's, that's, yeah, well, <laughs> that's the other most commonly referred to uh, item on the show. That's for later, though. But yeah, I do, I do wonder. Uh, I, I hope, <laughs> I hope there's somebody out there who's a fan of those things. And <laughs> yeah, almost every, almost everybody listening to it was like, "What the hell are they talking about? <laughs> King's Quest? What is that?" <laughs> Actually, you know, some of the some of the younger generation anyway uh, is familiar with it. Like, I'm pretty sure Matt London was telling us that uh, that he he had been like replaying some, you know, one of the iterations of King's Quest uh, fairly recently. Okay, good. Yeah, if anyone's listening to this and, and has any idea what we're talking about, post a comment and, and let us know. <laughs> yeah, King's Quest fans represent. You know, come on. Like, But um, I do think it's really great if you have games that kind of inspire an interest in, you know, going and reading classic literature and, you know, learning about the world and stuff like that. I, I wish there were, were more of those things. I wish they would bring back King's Quest, frankly, and... You know, they could have all sorts of other things. I just think it would be cool. I mean, I don't know if anyone would play this but me, but if they had, like, Shakespeare Quest and, Mm -hmm. you know, the whole world was just all characters from Shakespeare plays and in order to solve the puzzles and in order to know what you were doing and stuff, you would have to be familiar with the place. You would go and read, you know, you would meet characters. You're like, oh, this character is from this play and you would go and read it and stuff like that. I think that Mm -hmm. would be really cool. So if there are any game designers out there who want to lose a lot of money, (laughs) (laughs) there's an idea for you. Well, you know, I mean, if you do it right, you could probably actually make money on it just by, um, you know, uh, marketing it to schools and stuff that would make that a, a learning tool rather than just a game. But so like when uh, when Holly was talking about, you know, she was talking about how you get to a point where it's not cool to play with dolls anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was making me think about how, you know, like <laughs> when I was a kid, my, my mom would always be like, go, go clean up your dolls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I'd be like, what, what dolls? I don't know. I don't have any dolls. And she's like, you know, all those Star Wars dolls. And I'm like, those are not dolls. 
Those are action figures. Girl, exactly. Girls play with dolls. <laughs> right. Has nothing, has, those have nothing to do with dolls whatsoever. And I was thinking that, actually, when I think back on that now, that it seems like that kind of just sort of petulant, <laughs> like, intellectual dishonesty is exactly the same kind of thing you see from authors like Margaret Atwood when they're saying that they um, don't write science fiction. Mm-hmm. You know, they're like, I don't write science fiction. I write right. speculative fiction. <laughs> it's completely different. You know? Yeah, that's true. That's, that actually is. I don't play with dolls. <laughs> they're action figures. But uh, I was, you know, I was going to say that I, you know, when I used to play with the, the action figures that, I mean, it was really fun and I would just invent these great adventures, you know, and like it was really a great preparation for being a writer. I've, I've heard actually a lot of authors kind of make like, like Holly did make that analogy between, you know, playing with toys and writing stories, you know, and it is kind of disappointing as you get older, how, because, you know, you, you, you probably will find this hard to believe, but I, I was actually kind of popular. Hmm. You know, when I was a kid in daycare, because mm-hmm. I was really good at making, you know, making up games and making up stories and stuff. <laughs> and actually, I used to make my own action figures uh, out of, you know, out of just paper and scotch tape and stuff. And then, you know, I was kind of like a, like George Lucas almost. You know, we were talking about <laughs> like George Lucas and his like empire, you know, kind of multimedia empire. And that was kind of what I was like in daycare because I had, you know, my like comic books and the... uh uh, and like the action figures, you know, that were connected to the comic books and then like the sort of make-believe games we would all play that were connected to the, that, you know, and it was all interconnected. And so I would actually like sell kids action figures that I made. Hmm. And I actually, I, I got shut down because it, it it turned out the kids were skipping lunch and then they were using their lunch money to buy my action figures. Huh. And so when that came out, you know, they banned me from uh, <laughs> from selling any more stuff in, in daycare. Wow. But, your, your career crushed at an early age. Yeah, yeah. You're right, though. I do find it hard to believe that you were popular. <laughs> but, um, but, but yeah, I mean, but when you're, when you're a kid, you know, you can achieve a, a substantial measure of popularity by having a, a great imagination. And then, you know, once you get to be a teenager... It then, becomes a liability for jocks to beat you up. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, what, what makes you popular as a teenager is just, you know, how much... You know what? What portion of the day you spend intoxicated, you know, <laughs> and with whom? And then when you get to be an adult, you know what makes you, what gives you social status is how much money you have. You know. Mm-hmm. Although I think uh, you know, I mean, to a, to a, a large extent, uh, you know the, that that same sort of coolness based on being really imaginative and creative. Uh, that's sort of like a new way to be popular these days too, just because like you know, sort of geek culture is sort of taken over the world to some degree. You know, I mean, it's like still there's a lot of people who still view the view the idea of being a geek in a negative light but the 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 richest people in the world today are probably almost all geeks right and and the thing and the fact is i mean you know as a geek you can have just like legions and legions of fans that like you know will make you way more popular than you know most people who are not geeks so yeah so i mean i I definitely do think it is you know that that the internet has made it so much better to 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 be uh, a, a sort of creative you know kind of person and, and to connect with other people like that but i do kind of miss playing with my action figures hmm. and uh you know like when you're a kid you know it was just like like i remember you know i was, I was really into transformers and there was <laughs> there were that all so surprising <laughs> and they're all you know they're all the constructicons and so they're each a uh a toy uh piece of construction equipment let's say like a uh, cement mm-hmm. mixer or something and they turn into a robot but then you if you get five of them together you can combine them into a gigantic robot Right. 
And, I remember those. And I never got. I only got two ever mm. of the five. And it, they were only like the right arm and the left leg or something. So I couldn't even connect those two together in any way. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh, man, if I could have just gotten that giant, I think it was called Destructor Robot, mm-hmm. I would have been so happy. And like really nothing that could happen to me now would be as exciting <laughs> as if I had been able to get Destructor you know, when I was five, I years, five years old. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. But, you know, like I heard Neil Gaiman say that he he sort of always resolved to spoil his children mm-hmm. because he can remember being a kid and what it was like to get a toy or something and just how incredibly happy it made you. Yeah. And he's like, well, if I can just create that much human happiness in the world for 10, <laughs> 10 bucks or whatever, you know, it's a small price to pay. Right. Yeah, you know, I remember vividly this one time, like, you know, I was a big He-Man fan uh, when I was a kid, and uh, I, I remember, like, you know, I was just always so excited when I got a new He-Man action figure, and uh, and there was this one time I was at, like, Kmart with my mom, and I always wanted to get, like, these certain different characters from He-Man, and, and they just never had them, you know? It's like they always had the same ones over and over, the ones that I already had, you know? And then, so one of them that I never had was uh, Triclops. Uh, and, uh, so one time when I was at the store, um, we walked up to the section where they had the toys and, and this, and this mother and a kid in the store, like they, they just took the last Triclops and I was like, oh, so close, <laughs> you know, but then here, wait, it goes on. So they walk, they start walking away with it, but then the kid's like being a brat or something. So the mother like sort of takes it out of the cart and is like almost putting it back. And I got so <laughs> excited. It's like, oh, keep being bad, you little jerk. You know? and I can get that Triclops, you know? Uh, but then like he, he you know, begged his mother enough and that he would be good. And so she took it. And so I was that close to getting the Triclops finally. And, uh, but it it wasn't to be, I I don't remember if I ever actually did get it. I I seem to recall that I did, but. But um, it wasn't that, that Triclops. No, it wasn't. That was the one you wanted. Yeah. You know, I kind of wonder like what, what the heck happened to like all of our toys? You know I mean? I don't know. Maybe you still have them in a chest somewhere at your house, but I mean, like I don't have any of my toys, you know, when I was a kid, like no GI Joes, no He-Man, you know, no Transformers. And I had all that stuff. Um, Do you remember Mask? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, I had, I had a bunch of those too. And, you know, I watched the cartoon and all that, but you know, I mean, I don't know what happened to any of that stuff. It's kind of sad. I'm guessing your mom threw it out. Maybe. I mean, it's possible I threw it out when I got, you know, to be a teenager or something. I was like, oh, this stuff is junk now or whatever. But um, oh, no, I would never do that. It was definitely <laughs> my mom. I mean, because this, this seems to happen generation after generation where, you know, moms just throw out like, oh, no yeah. one's going to want these stupid baseball cards anymore. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, like, mom, I could have retired on those baseball cards. <laughs> yeah. Well, good thing Mark Hamill's mom didn't throw out all his comics, right? I mean, it's like he became... He, he, like, sort of started the whole comic book collecting thing by, you know, selling by selling off his comic book collection. I did not know that. Oh, you didn't? Oh, no. yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's why, basically, I think Mark Hamill did, never really had to work much after Star Wars, besides the fact that he's, you know, getting money off all Star Wars residuals. But, I mean, it's like he, he like, made a ton of money off selling comic books. Did he get residuals off of that? I, I thought, like... Oh, I don't know. Maybe he didn't. Because I thought, like, Alec Guinness negotiated for a percentage and the rest of the actors were just like no one's going to want to watch this movie <laughs> and just accepted like a flat fee and so Alec Guinness was just like set for life you know oh yeah no I don't know that could be true but I mean I, uh, re- regardless of what they made off Star Wars I know I know Mark Hamill um, you know made a ton off selling comic books but no I really wish I still had my Star Wars action figures I mean A because I could play with them but also I have this really <laughs> I really wanted to I have an, an idea to make a like a stop action movie using them that I think would just, just be absolutely hilarious but it it would be so much funnier if I had those old, you know, sort of beat up ones, you know, with a little lightsaber you can push out of the guy's arms. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, it would really be so much funnier if I could get those. And so I've thought about 
buying new ones, you know, so mm-hmm. I can make my stop action movie. And you know, when you're a kid, you know, like you think like a hundred dollars is a huge amount of money. You're like, right, mom, how much is a car? And she's like, it costs a lot. You know, and you're like more than a hundred dollars. She's mm-hmm. like, yeah, yeah, a lot more. But so recently, I was I'm thinking about making this movie, and I'm like, well, come on, I have, you know, a hundred dollars isn't that big a deal to me anymore. Maybe I could just go and buy you know buy a collection of, of action figures i could use mm-hmm. and those things are freaking expensive <laughs> oh man you know i'm like wow even even as an adult i can't afford to buy these things you know now <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of i can understand why my parents didn't want to blow their money on this stuff but well you know what i think probably uh the guys who who make robot chicken they probably have all of our action figures now yeah because <laughs> uh, you know they have to destroy so many of them when they're uh, doing their show uh you know, they probably, uh, they just have, they, they've bought every single old action figure from the 80s. That's what I was actually wondering, like, when they do Robot Chicken, because I was thinking of kind of doing something similar. Right. Do they have to get rights to those characters or anything, or can you just use old action mm. figures? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, well, no, because it's parody, so it's probably all fair game. But even to use, I mean, like, the story, obviously, would be protected, but to actually use somebody else's, oh, mm-hmm. you know, prop, basically, in your yeah, yeah. movie? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah, if anybody listening <laughs> to this knows the answer to that, I'm I'm kind of curious about that. Or if anybody from Robot Chicken wants to come on the show and talk to us <laughs> about it, that would be awesome. But, you know, uh, one of my favorite writers is George R. R. Martin, and he has, I don't know if you've ever been to his website, but he collects, like, toy knights and miniatures and stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever looked at that, and he has, you know, like, huge castle, like, dioramas in his house and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then he writes, you know, these fantastic books about knights and castles and stuff. And so I wonder how much, you know, how much does the collecting those toys and, you know, painting them and, and thinking about them and having them around you, how much does that help you when it comes to, to write about those kinds of subjects? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I actually have a, I don't, I don't know if I would say a collection, but I, I certainly have a bunch of uh, old D&D miniatures, you know, because I, I played D&D, uh, you know, in, when I was a teenager and stuff. And, uh, and you know, we had all the, the sort of lead miniatures that you would paint yourself, and I painted a bunch of them. And so, you know, I, I still have them, and I just have them sort of lining up at my bookshelf. Uh, maybe I'll take some pictures of them and post them on the show notes. But <laughs> I don't know if it's the miniatures, but D&D certainly was a huge factor in, in getting me to where I am, you know, just to even – to even consider creating anything like you know a, a piece of fiction or anything, uh, I don't know that I would have gotten to that point without D and D. That's where that's where I took my first steps creatively was uh, you know trying to run a D and D campaign. You know, just ru- uh, writing my own adventure and uh, you know from scratch, not running a module um, that you bought in the store. And and so that was the first thing I did. And and eventually I gave that up because I was like I, I didn't like all that whole interactive part where the you know stupid players would ruin all my elaborate plans. <laughs> um, you know, and that's and that's when I sort of uh, you know took off and you know, tried to write something, uh, instead. And then, which eventually led me to editing. But, um, yeah, I mean, D and D just like, it, I think it's just games like that are so great for like inspiring creativity in people. Cause I mean, it kind of forces you to become creative, you know, especially, I mean, especially the dungeon master. I mean, like you have to be really creative to do that. Um, and, and George R. R. Martin, I guess, he, you know, he's, he's into role-playing games too. And he, I guess, you know, for, for years, he, I guess he says he was just like addicted to this superhero role-playing game. And he's like, my my friends and loved ones and stuff, they were ready to stage an intervention for me because <laughs> I was just like obsessed with rolling up characters, you know, and stuff. Yeah, and yeah. it was, you know, it was really detracting from my writing. And so he's like, well, come on, I'm spending so much time in this role playing game. There must be some way I can make some money out of this. <laughs> and so that's where the whole, the idea for Wild Cards, you wow. know, the, the Wild Cards Shared World Anthology series came from. Right. And that's so, cool. so like all the people in the gaming group were the, you know, sort of the initial seed group of people who wrote stories, you know, all based on their characters mm-hmm. for that for that series. 
I guess that would be the the third subtitle of the show would be Ode to Wild Cards. <laughs> We've talked about that a lot too. <laughs> because you know, because I've been thinking about this because you know, I don't know, maybe whenever Stephen King's on writing book came out, it was, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, I think, you know, mm-hmm. but, but when I read that, he basically says, you know, if you want to be a writer, you have to read four hours a day and write four hours a day and make time to do that, no matter what, if it means, you know, like reading books in restaurants while you're waiting for your food, you know, that's what you got to do. And you have to cut out everything that doesn't directly contribute to reading or writing. You have to cut out TV. It's just all stupid anyway, and video games and Mm-hmm. Uh, you know all that stuff and so that really actually made a big impression on me so after after i read that i mean that sounded because 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 basically what he says is you know um you know tv shows and movies and things they may have good stories and they may teach you a little bit about putting together a plot and stuff but they won't give you the same sort of familiarity with words and mm-hmm. um uh, ability with words that they're reading fiction will and and I, th- I thought yeah that sounds sensible to me so i did really make an effort to focus on reading uh, you know, prose as much as I could and, and cut out the video games and TV and stuff to, to to the extent that I could. But then I think about like, like George R. R. Martin, he's got his like role playing games and collecting miniatures and stuff that all seem to be contributing to his writing. And I wonder, like, should I should I be having more geeky side mm-hmm. hobbies? I mean, would that actually in the long run benefit my creativity? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's it's probably different for every person. I mean, for Stephen King, he probably felt like he had to go that route. Um, and I mean, I think a large part of that is probably, you know, making sure that these other geeky pursuits don't actually take over your life and don't, uh, you know, make you stop writing or whatever completely, uh, because it's certainly easy to get totally lost in, like, say, a TV show, especially now that they have them on DVD where like, you can sort of, you know, sit and go through a whole television show within the span of a couple of days. And so, you know, think about like how much time you would waste doing that or uh, or, you know, you get a video game and, and, you know, one game, you know, you can spend you know, 80 hours or more of, of playing time, you know, actually playing through the game. Um, or if it's World of Warcraft, yeah. you can just be your whole life. Right, you know, I mean, that's that's a game that apparently is so addictive, I'm, af- I'm afraid to even try playing it. Well, I mean, not, I mean, although I, I actually have tried playing like, the sort of uh, MMO uh, games online before, and, and I don't know, I just, they don't appeal to me as much as, like, um, you know, sort of a just self-contained uh, game that you, where you're, like, playing through a, a one specific narrative. Yeah, I, I mean, never, I never really got into the MMOs either. I mean, partially, you know, like, because I was saying, I sort of started really focusing on fiction around the time, you know, that they started becoming really popular. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's also like, the, but the selling points are kind of like, well, you can interact with people, and I don't want to do that. Yeah, and uh, you know, I do like being the hero, you know, of the story, and you know, you you start playing the game, and twenty hours later, whatever, you've saved the world, and you know, like, oh, that was cool, I saved the world. Whereas, like, I feel like if I logged into a MMO, I would kind of be this level one character, and there would just be these like super powered characters all around that I could never possibly hope to compete with unless I wanted to completely devote my life to this game, and I don't. Mm-hmm. Right. But uh, <laughs> you know, like like sort of, I was saying I used to sell all my my action figures. I guess you know that that's another thing that George R. R. Martin talks about now is that he has all these kind of pro- spin off products from Song of Ice and Fire, where there are miniatures and board games and collectible card games and a role-playing game and and stuff like that and uh i've heard him say it's kind of funny he says i I think sometimes you know because he's like because i consider i consider myself a serious novelist and i wonder you know would f scott fitzgerald have a (laughs) great gatsby collectible card game you know right and then he's like and then i think about i'm like well you know probably he would have anything that would support his boozing you know (laughs) yeah (laughs) 
you know, speaking of George R. R. Martin spinoffs, uh, my sister was just up visiting, and we went to uh, Medieval Times, uh, which is this sort of uh, it, it's like a it's like a place where you go to eat dinner, and they serve you in a sort of medieval style, like you know they sort of give you chicken and soup and all this stuff that would have been available in Medieval Times, and then like you sit there and you watch a show where it's sort of like wrestling, where it's like except that they're all dressed in armor and they're fighting with swords and stuff, but it's all like sort of scripted and fake, and but it's just like an entertaining show, right? Um, and so they have there's like a storyline to it, though, like there's a king and there's this prince who went off to make peace with this one evil kingdom and, you know, and he's missing and and, uh, and they're doing this tournament and, and, and the storyline plays out over the course of the tournament. And, you know, I couldn't help but think that, you know, this would be so much better if it was like infused with George R. R. Martinness, um, like, you know, instead of having the, the kingdoms that they have there in medieval times, it would be like you know, House Stark and, and House Lannister and, and, and all that stuff. And, um, you know, you had some actual good uh, George Martin um, plot lines going in there where, like, you know, characters that you might have been cheering for would actually die and, and stuff. <laughs> and uh, it just it would be so cool. Like, you know, I, I'd totally go to Song of, Ice, Song of Ice and Fire times, you know. Yeah, well, maybe once the HBO, if the HBO series becomes really popular, maybe they'll, yeah. they can arrange like a Song of Ice and Fire day at Medieval Times or something. Yeah, that would be totally awesome. But, you know, just just with like writers having hobbies like, you know, collecting miniatures and stuff like that, I, I have heard that I, I forget who told me this, but 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 they were saying that most writers sooner or later, they have to do something tangible, like with their hands. That's not just writing because writing is so about ideas and so intangible and that if you're just all in your head, just imagining things all the time, it gets to be overwhelming. And so most writers they eventually have to start gardening or hmm. you know sculpting or just doing something where they're actually touching something physically real i don't know have you ever heard heard anything like that uh no i haven't uh i mean it, it kind of does make sense to me though i mean I, I think at least part of that is that when you're doing stuff like that it sort of makes you turn your brain off you know for a little while and, and you're just sort of devoted to the task at hand and that that can sort of uh free up your mind to sort of in the background think about about your writing stuff and, and just can sort of free you up a little bit because uh, you're, you're not actively thinking about it. It's like you're just thinking, like say you're painting a, one of these miniatures or something. It's like, you know, uh, oh, it's like, you know, that's all you're thinking about right at this moment. But um, I, I wish I wish there was more tasks like that that I found interesting that I could actually sit and do. Because, you know, when I was listening to a lot of audiobooks, uh, I mean, I don't have as much time to do them any to listen to them anymore. But, you know, one of the things that I always like to find is, is, is tasks like that that I could do that – um, didn't require enough mental energy to to perform that I could actually you know follow an audiobook. So um, just sort of repetitive tasks that uh, or I guess like I said you know they don't require much mental energy. But you know like something like like driving for instance you can do you can drive and listen at the same time. But then there's if if you if you sort of put your mind to it you can find other things to do. Like I mean like even just cooking. Like I mean if you if you know how to make what you're making and you've done it before it's like it doesn't require a lot of thought to actually put it together. So, you know, you can do stuff like that or if you're like cleaning up the house or something like that. But um, I wish there was more sort of enjoyable tasks like that that I could think of to do. Well, you know, like like when you go to conventions, a lot of times you'll see people in the audience knitting, like sitting oh. there and, and knitting. Hmm. That seems yeah, like yeah. That's, that, that, that's that kind of thing. Right, right. But like when you mentioned... I, I, said, I said fun, though. <laughs> no uh, offense to knitters out there. But like when you mentioned driving, I do kind of wish... You know, like when I when I moved out to LA, I drove across the country, and so you're just driving twelve hours a day, and I would listen to a, a complete audiobook from beginning to end, you know, every day, uh-huh. and it was really fun. But you know, if I was just around the house, I couldn't sit there and listen to an. I could, couldn't just like sit on the couch for twelve hours and listen to an audiobook. <laughs> I would have to. 
you know after like 30 minutes i'm like oh i wonder if anyone's emailed me you know <laughs> yeah yeah no yeah, I mean, that's that's always been the problem for me with audiobooks is that you can't just sit and listen to it but, but i wish uh, i wish there was some way i could draw you know just spend all day driving that didn't mm-hmm. you know i didn't have to pay for all that gas and and all that stuff you know right well you know i did i did promise some some robert aspirin related uh yeah material so uh you know when, when holly was talking about her new series which sound the, the white cat uh which sounds really, really cool. But when she was talking about this sort of intersection of magic and mobsters, you know, obviously I couldn't help but think about, you know, Robert Asprin's myth series where he has, you know, the mob comes in, you know, about halfway through and is, is sort of a major, uh, you know, major element in that story. And, you know, when I, when I first read those books, I was young enough. I, oh, and so, you know, you know, like in um, Cinderella, how there's the fairy godmother. So, so in, in the myth books, there's the fairy godfather. And so he's like, he's like a fairy, but he's, uh, you know, he's like Marlon Brando, the godfather <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so so when I was reading when I was reading those books, I was young enough that you know not only did I not know what the Godfather was, but I didn't even know what the mob was. Mm-hmm. So you know, like my my introduction to the concept of organized crime was, <laughs> the, was those books. And so you know I, I've, I've reread those books many many times. And so it's funny because you know I can still remember you know what I thought about them at age six and at age eight and at age twelve and how each time I would reread them after a couple, you know I would you know pick up more stuff like oh now i get it Hmm. you know now i get that that's a pun you know oh that's horrible (laughs) (laughs) but uh i actually i really like that because because actually those those adventure those like sierra adventure games like king's quest they had the same thing where you're just completely surrounded by characters from that are all sort of references to other stories and a lot of times you don't know what those other stories are until you go and seek them out Mm -hmm. and so i've always kind of liked that feeling of I know that this is a reference to something, but I don't know what it is. And, uh, and it's funny because you can kind of get that sense from things. Even I don't, I don't know. I can't put my finger on what gives something that feel. So well, like, like, for instance, like when you're talking to somebody, you can tell if they quoted something. Mm-hmm. But like uh, in uh, Mything Persons, they, they go to this. I, I mentioned it before. They, they go to this werewolf vampire world and they meet these these werewolves called the wolf riders who are sort of it's a husband and wife team of of werewolf riders and they're kind of uh, activists and even as a kid I, re- I read this and i'm like i know that this is a reference to something but i don't know what it is mm-hmm. and um i just was reading wikipedia recently and it said that these characters are are based on a husband and wife team who is the creator of the elf quest role-playing game uh-huh. and that the characters names in the book are actually anagrams of the you know the first names of this husband and wife and like uh there was a um, in one of the books. There's a character named the Butterfly, and it's just such an odd name that you're like, I know this must be some sort of in joke or something, but I have no. And for years, I, I could not figure out what it was supposed to be. And there's also a character in that same book called Edvik, and and recently this this guy named Edvik, who's a writer who I, I'd actually heard of. He posted on my blog, you know, because I'd I'd written something about that, and he said, Oh, actually, you know, this character is named after me. It's uh, you know, um, authors sometimes will have these charity auction things where they'll you know, to, to raise money for charity, you know, people will pay to have themselves inserted into the book as a as a as a named character. And so this guy Edvik, he said that he had won. It had come down to, to him and this other guy uh, in this charity auction. And and in the end, Aspirin said, oh, "I'll just put both of you guys in." And and the other guy, and he says, so he says to the other guy, "What's your name?" And the guy's just like, "Call me the Butterfly," <laughs> and just like walked out of the room. <laughs> and that's all, you know. So that's where that name come came from. I know. Speaking speaking of other fairy stuff. Um, well, there's this great uh, Gary Larson Farside cartoon. It's called the the caption is Car Key Gnomes, 
and they're you know there's this guy asleep in bed and these gnomes are sneaking around and they're pulling his keys out of his pants pocket and pocket and sticking them under the couch you know mm-hmm. and i'm like that actually that actually does make a lot of sense i can <laughs> i could definitely see that that happening right you know i i've never been uh big on on the car key fairy though like uh i don't know i always know where my keys are i've never i've never been one to like lose my keys and never know where they are wow. although I, I know i know a lot of people have that issue though yeah See, I just have a box. I have a box where I put my wallet and my keys, and that's where they go. You know, when I unload uh, my pockets, that's where the stuff goes. Hmm. That's all you need to do. You don't need to worry about fairies. <laughs> well, of course, the box is iron. You know, and you know, fire fairies don't like iron. Mm, yeah, but probably the best fo- fairy story that I can think of is the Stephen King story that I I actually listened to the audiobook years and years ago. Um, but it's called The Ballad of the Flexible Bullet. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a great that's a great story. You know, I haven't read it in years and years and years, but but the premise, as as, as I remember, is that there's a, an editor, and uh, he gets a letter from a writer, and the writer has has written this little at the end, at the bottom of his letter he's written this little slogan or something that says something like in Fornit Fornum or something like that, and the editor doesn't know what this means, and he just you know when he sends the writer back a letter he does he puts the same thing at the bottom, just kind of as you know randomly, and then the writer writes him back and he's like oh my god you know about the Fornits too. And so it turns out that this writer believes that there are these elves, these sort of fairies that help writers write their books. And if you put peanut butter on your typewriter and then go to bed, the, the fairies come out at night and, and type on type on your manuscript. And the story, it's so like I, I, I listened to the audiobook as I was driving, actually. And it real and, and so the editor slowly becomes convinced that the Fornets are real and kind of starts going. And you don't know whether he's going crazy or whether it's really happening, but you feel like he's going crazy and you feel like you're going crazy. I mean, <laughs> The story is just really good at just really messing with your perception of reality. Yeah, well, no, those things are real, though. So, <laughs> Shh. Don't tell them it, that. It doesn't so, work so great in a MacBook, though, you know, because there's like there's really nowhere for the peanut butter to go. It's it's kind of messy. Hmm. But so, um, you know, Holly's writing this uh, writing these graphic novels now. And actually, in, in our last episode, we didn't have time to talk about this, but you were asking John Langan about are there um, academic programs where you know, graphic novels are making inroads. And uh, and that actually reminded me, you know, there's this podcast I listen to sometimes called um, Comic Geek Speak. You know, I don't listen to every episode because it would be impossible to listen to every episode because they release like eight hours a week of, uh, <laughs> of material. But I've listened to a lot of them. And there's this one guy named Adam Murdo, who's one of the hosts. And I really, I really like his, his comments. He's, he's just really uh, thoughtful and, and interesting. And, and so it turns out that he actually went to a a pro- he went. To, I guess he did this program at Bowling Green, where they have a master's in popular culture, and so he actually wrote his master's thesis on Crisis on Infinite Earths. <laughs> actually, in, on this comic geek speak, if you go and check out episode five twenty seven, Adam Murdo um, sort of interviews one of his old professors from Bowling Green about their program. So, if you're curious about that sort of thing, you should go listen to that episode and, and find out more. So, what are you qualified to teach if you have a master's in like pop culture? I mean, that that kind of seems like a cool master's to pursue. Uh, what? Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I assume you're qualified to teach to teach pop culture. Pop culture. I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I te- to teach, you know, English or I don't know. But I mean, not you know, maybe people want to get degrees not just so that they can teach, but so that they can, mm-hmm. you know, start podcasts and right. Yeah, well, because you totally need a master's degree to do that. <laughs> yeah, you actually we don't let anyone on this show unless they have a PhD in geekology. Yeah. Uh, you know, anyone host this show, you know, John and I are both, I mean, we don't like to brag, but we're both doctor, you know, Dr. Curley and, and Dr. Adams. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just it's too pretentious to ask people <laughs> to refer to you that way. So you know, I never do. Um, of course, I sign my name that way, but that's something else entirely. And that was our show. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. If you'd like to share your thoughts about any of the topics we discussed today, we'd love to hear from you. Just go to Tor.com and click on Podcasts, and then Geek's Guide to the Galaxy Episode 14 and post a comment there. And be sure to join us next week when we'll talk to Dan Carlin, science fiction fan and host of the popular Hardcore History Podcast. See you then. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Tor.com. For this episode's show notes or to subscribe to this podcast, visit Tor.com and click on Podcasts. For more information about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarrcurtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Deadspill 9 Entertainment. If you've enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.